and welcome to episode eight of the Ideal Nutrition Podcast. I am Aidan Muir and I am here with my co-host Leah Heigl and today we're going to be talking about flexible dieting. So flexible dieting is something that I'm passionate about to a certain degree, not necessarily so much the tracking macro side of things, which we'll talk through all of that, like not necessarily so much that, more so the overall concepts that come alongside flexible dieting. Um, Did you want to get straight into it and give a bit of background on what flexible dieting is? Let's get into it. So we we talked a lot about this and we aren't sticklers for a definition on what flexible dieting actually is because it can be interpreted in so many ways and it can be applied in so many different ways. Uh, But we tend to interpret it as kind of like an if it fits your macro style approach to dieting, but with some focus on food quality as well. So if it fit your if it fits your macros is a, a dieting concept that kind of came about around the time that bodybuilding.com was popular. Um, so when I was like first getting into nutrition, this was the big thing that was around at the time. This is what everybody was doing. Um, and it basically means that as long as you're hitting your macros, you know, that's that's all that matters. It your results really, will be the same. Exactly. Yeah. Like you're still going to reach your ideal body composition as long as you hit your macros doesn't really matter what kind of food that's coming from. Flexible dieting, on the other hand, we like to view it as it has that kind of macro and calorie focus where you are at most of the time you're going to be tracking calories and protein to a certain extent. Potentially there's some kind of uh, flexibility when it comes to fat versus carbohydrate and like letting that be a little less particular and specific in the numbers that you're trying to hit. Um, But there's also this concept of maybe even like the 80-20 rule um, where you're eating like 80% of the time whole foods, very nutrient dense. And then 20% of the time you're, you're having, I guess, more free foods that potentially are less nutrient rich. Um, So there is that little bit of focus on food quality. So it's not like, oh, go out there and, um, eat McDonald's for every meal of the day. Um, But as long as you hit your macros, you'll be fine. So there is that little bit of focus, or we tend to put that focus on food quality as well as part of the flexible dieting process. And that's for many reasons. Um, So flexible dieting is, is most often used in the way that you're maybe tracking your calories and macros via an app. So something like like MyFitnessPal is super popular. So that's where you'll typically find flexible dieting, like within that context of of tracking. Um, But to be truly flexible, we feel that it's probably a good idea to not be strictly guided by these very specific macro targets, like if it fits your macros typically is. Um, So... Obviously, you want to stay within a certain range of your your cal- like target calorie intake. Like if you're in a calorie deficit, it makes sense that you want to stick to that calorie deficit. Um, but you know, potentially your your fat and carbohydrate intake does differ day to day depending on what foods you are choosing. Um, although there's definitely an argument if muscle retention or muscle building is important to you that you'd hit some kind of minimum protein, protein. target. Yeah, and like adding on to that as well, like. Because as we said, we're not sticklers for definitions. Like there could be people listening to this being like, no, flexible dieting is pretty much just interchangeable if it fits your macros. It's just a different name. And like, I get that. That's fine. Like this is just how we're going to be talking about flexible dieting. And like even adding on to that as well, like with the whole calorie deficit thing, like there's no reason you can't be in a calorie deficit six days of the week and one day overshoot your targets and go too high calorie and still make progress for the week or however long. You can extend this flexibility as much as you like within reason. Like it's still... 
a way to reach your goals. Going back to like some origin stuff with if it's if it fits your macro, something that I found very interesting, like because even if it fits your macros, I think that was even a little bit before our time. Like as in like I got onto bodybuilding.com 2011. I think it was like maybe 2007 at first, like kind of emerged. Like it was quite quite early. So like I saw on Instagram Alan Aragon. He I think he reposts this every year, but he talks about the origins of if it fits your macros and. Basically, it was a tool that they used on bodybuilding.com to answer silly questions to a certain degree. As in, the one that comes to my mind is if people would ask the question being like, does it matter for my gains if I eat chicken breast or steak for dinner? And they used to write out really long-winded answers that like address a whole bunch of aspects, basically boiling down to if you've hit your macronutrient targets in the context of that question, it doesn't matter. Like That's what they were talking about. And I noticed very much so that like a lot of the big early proponents of if it fits your macros, like the creators of it, even used to use lines in terms of being like, and your fiber intake is sufficient. And they'd even say stuff about how that can offset some of the insulin spikes, so to speak, that come alongside consuming sugar and all of those kind of things. And one of the other things that I found fascinating as well in the origins of if it fits your macros is that using the USA data, because this is where it's most popular, um, and the recommended daily intakes of micronutrients, on average, it takes about 80% of your calorie requirements, like maintenance calories, to reach these recommended daily intakes of micronutrients, which is part of what, firstly, supports the 80-20 rule, but part of what also supports if it fits your macros being like, if you just make some flexible choices with some of your foods, as in you don't have to stress over whether it's chicken breast or steak or like whatever, you're going to hit your micronutrient targets anyway because you've hit that with like 80% of your calories. And that's an arbitrary number because like what if you choose really like superfoods, like super nutrient-rich foods that you had a ton of vegetables or whatever? It would take less than 80%. What if um you ate, I don't know, like it goes a lot of ways basically. But I find that whole kind of logic interesting because it's like when if a fit macros is viewed in that kind of light, it means a lot of the same stuff we're talking about. But when... The reason I prefer the terminology personally of flexible dieting is just because it takes away some of the um, negative connotations of if, if it fits your macros. If it fits your macros can be turned into quite literally, if it fits your macros, you can have anything. Um, never how it was originally intended, kind of what it turned into. It's why I prefer flexible dieting. Definitions don't really matter. Yeah, I just say, I think it's funny that we went from like, if it fits your macros, like that was pretty popular, like you said, around 2007. And we really kind of went to the very extreme of what that meant in yeah. that it was predominantly made up of like junk food if you wanted to. But then what came after that was clean eating as like a way to diet. So I just think that's, that's kind of funny. Yeah. yeah. And like, I can say, I don't know, like, like a lot of influencers would eat like chicken, broccoli and brown rice for like most of their meals. And then they'd post the donuts or whatever on Instagram or ice cream or whatever. Like, because posting chicken, broccoli and brown rice is boring. <laughs> so people would consume that content and be like, oh, my favorite bodybuilder has ice cream totally. for dessert. Um, I don't know. So the next thing I want to talk about is like, so why does this work? Like, how can you, how does ice cream fit into a bodybuilder's diet as an example? So touching on some of why that works. First one we're going to touch on is sugar. I spoke about this two podcasts ago, so episode six. Basically, there's no real difference between sugar in terms of its impacts on body composition and other forms of carbohydrate. Inherently, we would assume brown rice is going to be better for muscle gain and fat loss than sugar is. That's how we've always thought it through. 
if you hit your calories and your macros and everything like that, as I talked about with that Sawit et al. 1997 study where they compared 43% of calories coming from sugar versus 4% coming from sugar in the other group, 43 versus 4%, massive difference in sugar intake, they had the same fat loss because their calories and macros were matched. Um, that's the most extreme example. And it's obviously a more nuanced topic than that, but that's enough to just kind of point out that like, it doesn't really matter that much. And that also explains why if somebody had ice cream at the end of their day with like five to 10% of their calories and macros, they're going to get the same results. It's not going to make any difference. Um, the trick with all of this though, is that sugar is easier to overconsume. If you start trying to bend the rules of if it fits your macros or flexible dieting, it gets out of hand. Um, I remember on one of these forums I was on, somebody was talking about how they taught their mum how to handle if it fits your macros. And she'd eat her calories by 12 p.m. <laughs> she would just have like the equivalent of like Cocoa Pops for breakfast, like this massive bowl of it and only have protein left to hit for the day and then like no calories to hit it with. Um, and that really sunk home for like some of the flaws we're going to talk about later. Fat is a complex one because once again, inherently we assume if you're having salmon, avocado, nuts, extra virgin olive oil or coconut oil or whatever you're into, like if you're, you'd assume these things would be better for body composition. Going through that research, I had to reach really far to actually find stuff that showed that fat made a difference for body composition. If you're listening to this, you might actually be aware of some studies and stuff like that that support this. But like, there's only a few that came up from, from what I could find. And I looked pretty hard. One of the most popular ones, one that's cited everywhere where they're trying to make a claim that fat matters for body composition in terms of the type of fat, whether it's unsaturated, polyunsaturated, all of those kind of things, or monounsaturated versus saturated, all those kind of things. Um, one study really supported for that that a lot of people cite is a 2014 study from, I could mispronounce this, but Roskvisk et al., which is their... It was a Swedish group, basically, and they compared large amounts of palm oil to sunflower oil in a matched 750-calorie surplus. Um, the weight gain for both groups was equal. It was a calorie surplus. The calories were matched. But the sunflower oil group gained three times as much lean mass as the other group, as the palm oil group. Therefore, gained three times as much lean mass, same total mass, you're gaining less fat. That sounds incredibly promising. It's like, oh, so the type of fat does matter. But the total fat mass or total body mass change over seven weeks was 1.5 kilos. Not a massive change, not really a big difference. And um, I've spoken about this with like powerlifting coaches and stuff like that, but like sometimes good powerlifting coaches get lucky because they get strong people who are just like genetically blessed. When we're looking at studies like this, sometimes it's just like distributions. Like there's, there's people in at Valhalla at, at the gym that we train out of who like they gain muscle very easily. And I'm like, you put me in a study and you put them in a study and there's going to be very different results even if the training program is the same. And sometimes I think about this with studies like this where we're, we're looking at a study that has like a small number of participants and there's differences between groups for like a tiny amount of fat gain versus muscle gain or whatever. And we're trying to be like, oh, that was because I had palm oil instead of sunflower oil. I don't know. The whole point I want to come back to with all of this is that I had to look really hard to find any compelling research to start off with. And Let's be real, I haven't just looked at it in preparation for this podcast. I've been going down this rabbit hole for 10 years. Like, I haven't seen much to convince me that there's a big difference. It's enough there that I'm keeping my eyes on it, I'm paying attention to it, but it doesn't seem to really matter, which comes back to the point of being like, if you hit your fat target from a body composition and muscle gain and all those kind of things or fat loss, the results are going to be pretty similar. Yeah, I think, um, I think that's interesting because a lot of people would assume that the healthier fats would result in a better body composition. 
when that's not necessarily the case. Um, but obviously there's nuance in that there's a health aspect to dieting and you probably do want to maintain fairly good health. So you want to probably make sure that most of your fats aren't saturated fat just from that perspective. Yeah, I forgot to add that As a in. little like, caveat. Bit of a no-brainer. Like yeah. if you're listening to this, like you know we're health-focused people. Like yeah. don't just go and have a bunch of rubbish based on this, but like it's more, more so just explaining why this works for body composition. Totally. So the, the biggest thing when it comes to protein intake is we talk about this all the time between the two of us is that it's the total daily intake of protein that really matters for changes in body composition. Um, so when it comes to the quality, sure, there could be some focus on that if you're plant-based, but outside of being plant-based, it really doesn't matter where you're getting your protein from. Hitting that total daily protein target is is going to be at least 90 90% maybe more of the fight in improving lean muscle mass so when it comes to things like if it fits your macros or flexible dieting you can hit your protein intake however you want realistically um, and it's not going to make an overall difference to body composition 100% there's there's exception exceptions to this rule like for example collagen protein pretty poor for muscle protein synthesis wheat protein once again pretty poor for muscle protein synthesis if we go back to that like biological value which a lot of people use to determine protein quality um collagen's near zero um, yeah. and uh wheat is around 50 and then like eggs are at like 100 and then weighs like 99 or somewhere along those lines it's like super like super close and like chicken breast is up there all those kind of things but like if you're not like exclusively trying to get your protein from bad like bad quote-unquote quality sources in terms of biological value you're going to tick the box and like one of the ways to guarantee is just by having more than one option just having a variety of options and it's gonna you're just gonna have this abundance of overall amino acids which is going to cover all of your needs and i suppose the last thing we'll touch on with that as well is timing in terms of we, we were speaking about this a little bit before being like probably a good idea spread your protein intake out across the day I agree with the 90 plus percent of it coming down to total protein intake. That's that's a statement I 100% agree with. Maybe, questionable, but maybe spreading your protein intake out across the day makes a difference. This is where all that research that goes through stuff like to maximize muscle protein synthesis in a single sitting, like 20 to 40 grams of protein maximizes it. Going above that doesn't really seem to add anything additional onto it. That's cool and that's relevant and that's why I'm saying spread it out across the day. It's just that we also have the research showing that total daily protein intake matters more. And an example I like to use a lot, which comes back to, once again, why flexible dieting works, is if somebody is intermittent fasting, when we compare them on a calories and protein matched diet or calories and macros matched diet um, to a group that's spreading out their protein intake out across the day and they're in a calorie deficit, because firstly, the studies aren't really done in a calorie surplus, because if you're fasting, it's hard to get into a surplus. Possible, but hard. Um, the results in terms of body composition come out the same, pretty much the same. There's almost no difference. I wouldn't take that to an extreme. I wouldn't go and tell a bodybuilder who's about to get on stage, like doing competition prep, I wouldn't tell them to intermittent fast and not like not spread their protein intake out. I'd spread protein intake out. It matters. But this is explaining why flexible dieting works. Like yeah. it doesn't seem to matter. The fact that we have to reach through the research to like find that last 10% shows why flexible dieting works. Yeah, and I think it's good to like be aware of these things that could give you an extra 1% here and there. But at the end of the day, if you're trying to lose weight and 
retaining as much muscle mass as possible isn't your it's not everybody's goal like particularly if you're like gen pop you, you don't really like unless you're you're an athlete or you know it matters to you then you know utilizing like spreading protein across the day and um focus being really focused on the quality source of protein that does matter less in that case yeah somebody hit me up on instagram just in the comments and it was a very difficult question for me to answer I was talking about whey protein versus casein protein. Now, it doesn't really matter. I know one's quick, one's slow, but like if you look at it over 24, 48-hour period, it doesn't really matter, which is part of why coming back to why all this works. Like the research shows that over that time frame, it doesn't really matter. And somebody asked a question basically on the point that you're saying, where it's like, they're like, oh, does this matter? Because I only do mild intensity workouts ever. <laughs> no, like I, I don't know how to answer that because it's kind of like you're clearly not trying to optimize muscle gain. It depends on how much muscle matters to you. Yeah. Like if you do these extra things, if you're just trying to lose fat mass and you don't care about your your lean mass that much, yeah. like your body will prioritize like saving the lean mass anyway to a certain extent. And then anything you do on on top of like in regards to protein quality, spreading your protein throughout the day, they're really just kind of just bring that up by a couple of percent in regards to muscle retention. So if this doesn't matter to you, then kind of skip these rules. The number one reason a lot of people are drawn to flexible dieting or the reason that it can work under so many circumstances is that it reduces the overall dietary restraint of a particular diet. So when you feel less restricted, the compliance are like long-term is probably going to be better. Um, we know that restriction does lead to non-compliance. So if you feel like flexible dieting allows you to not feel that restriction, it just makes sense to diet in that way. And that's why I think it did become so big and why it does work for so many people. Um, so compliance is really the bottom line to if a diet works or not. So that really should be your main focus. I think the, the thing I like to compare this to is the non-compliance that we see in people taking up something like keto, something that is really restrictive um, and there's a very low chance of long-term compliance versus flexible dieting, which has, you know, you're still allowed to have bits and pieces of the food you enjoy, still allowed to have, you know, a certain level of variety um, as long as you're hitting that calorie and protein goal. Um, then it just makes sense why it works for for so many people. Um, another point would be that it works in a lot of different contexts. So a lot of diets can work well in isolation in that everything needs to be perfect for them to work. So your lifestyle needs to be in a certain place where, you know, maybe stress is low and you have a chance to meal plan every week. Um, and, you know, you're not really going out into a social setting. It requires all these different things for that diet to actually be, for you to be compliant to that actual plan. Um, but flexible dieting, I feel like it takes into account life. So going out on dates or going out with friends, going on holidays, times when you just don't have a chance to be prepared. Flexible dieting can still work in all those contexts because you have a variety of foods that you can choose from and you can just kind of make it work no matter the context that you're in. Another reason would be that it it's easy to adjust. So this is what I like about flexible dieting in that when you're working from, a, I guess, a food-based approach, so again, something like keto, um, we're talking about this a bit before, like what happens when keto doesn't work. I think you made a really good point is that you don't, you don't keto harder. I think that's a, that's yeah. a really good saying. Like if you, if you, most people looking to lose weight doing a ketogenic diet will lose weight if they stick to it. But what happens if you don't? 
like what are your options like as you were saying like do you just keto harder like do you add more butter to your coffee like do you just like go deeper down the rabbit hole like at least having some form of calorie awareness is the first step kind of gives you some form of answer but even using keto as an example say you do that and you've got calorie awareness it gives you if you're not tracking or having any kind of like clear calculation it gives you a guide but what if you try to reduce calories but you still don't reduce it by enough or you reduce it by too much or like you go like there's a lot to think about in terms of like that can work but so can flexible dieting like flexible dieting if you were tracking you know your calories you know that if your weight is not decreasing you just decrease the calories and that solves the problem it's mathematical yeah, it's easy when you have numbers and you have data. So if you know you're you're eating 2,000 calories a day and that worked for a while and you lost a bit of weight, but now it's no longer working. Uh, you know that you, you are consistently having that amount. Like if you're not being compliant, that's a whole different kind of ball game there. But you know you are being consistent to that calorie amount. Then you can easily decrease that to say 1,800 calories and keep going. It's a very... Um, like linear process in a way in that it has that next step and that next step where you know what to do when things stop working for you as opposed to other dietary approaches where it reduces calories in other food-based ways but you don't have that data to work from. For sure. Leading into some downsides that I, I want to talk about because I think we both share similar opinions on both the benefits and the downsides. But like one of the things about like with that data just being like, you know as a fact that you decrease the calories, weight will drop, all those kind of things. That's part of what can feed into some disordered eating habits, for example, in terms of like if you go low calorie without this data and you get hungry, your body tells you to eat and you probably eat. If you trust the data too much and it gives you a low number and you feel really hungry, but you're like, "Mm, this is all my body needs because that's the number. You might take it further and there's a lot to go on. I'll come, uh, I'll probably double down on that right now as well. There's even, I don't have it in front of me, but there's a study by Dr. Jake Lenarden. I think he's in Victoria, he's a dietitian. And he measured this on males and I'm sure there's data on females, but the males number surprised me. It was somewhere around around 40, maybe close to 50. I think it was like 43% of the number that's coming from my mind. 43%, sorry, I'm sounding really confident with that, but like 43% of males who use MyFitnessPal, reported that they felt it contributed to some form of disordered eating symptoms for themselves. And there was like 10% who felt like they weren't really sure. And then like the rest of them, so like another 40 or so percent, were like, nah, no disordered eating symptoms, great relationship with food. I find that really fascinating because firstly, I could be wrong. I'd make the assumption though in women, it's probably a higher number than in men. And if the number is 43%, or around 40% in men, that's a messed up stat. And that's something that we need to be aware of if we are recommending tracking calories to people. And this is an interesting one for me to say because I am quite pro tracking calories. I have a bias towards it, but it's like we'd be idiots to ignore that data. At the other end of the spectrum, because I feel like even people in the nutrition profession don't appreciate nuance to a full full spectrum. It's kind of like there was... 40 plus percent who felt like they had no issues with it and it was great. It works for some people, it doesn't work for others. I think leaving that kind of discussion at that topic being like, it's it's almost like another line I heard someone say being like, dieting is a contact sport, as in there is a risk that things go wrong. Um, they don't always. You can play sport and not get injured, but like there's a good chance. Um, 
Moving on to some other downsides. Um, I suppose the first one that I'd think about is this is going back to the whole discussion about if it fits your macros to a certain degree. There's a lack of emphasis on fiber and micronutrients. You probably should still emphasize those things. But doubling down on that as well, people often find they do weird things when they do flexible dieting. Heck, I've even done this when tracking calories and macros where like I've made certain decisions because I've got these macros left that I wouldn't have made under normal circumstances. Um, Not one specific to me, but like an example that comes to my mind is say you've got the choice between a cafe breakfast or macros and you're doing if it fits your macros. An acai bowl, as an example, super nutrient dense, super high calorie as well. You compare that to like a small meal from Macca's, you get more protein than the Macca's meal. It fits your macros better. <laughs> but it's like under no other circumstances would you consider that healthier eating. But it fits your macros and the body composition results will come out better. Food for thought. I don't know. It's a, it's, it's a downside of it to a certain degree. Um, other downsides, tracking is time consuming to a certain degree. Like, I don't know. I, I didn't track calories for a long period of time and I used to let clients get away with a bit of stuff now in hindsight in terms of they'd be like, I just take so long to track as in like, as in their plan was to track, but then they didn't track. And I recently tracked, I'm not tracking right now. And I was like, Oh, it's actually not that time consuming. (laughs) Like if you, if you track every time you eat, it's very quick, particularly once you get good at it, it's slow at the start, but it does get quick. But like at the end of the day, it still requires thought and it's a bit time-consuming, and you have to plan it out. As we were talking about in two podcasts ago, we are talking about meal planning and stuff like that. Tracking calories and macros still requires some form of planning because you've got to get to the end of the day and have something that fits your macros or calories or whatever. The more flexible you are, the better in terms of if you've got a calorie range instead of a set number and the range is, say, 200 calories, like between 1,600 and 1,800 or whatever, that makes it easier. If you're just aiming... For a certain amount of protein, acknowledging that in terms of body composition, the carbs and fat breakdown really doesn't matter. It's just hitting your protein and calories that matter. Then that gives you a lot more flexibility and takes that out of the equation, but still requires a bit of um, a bit of thought. And another thing I wanted to touch on, though, as well, which complicates things. I've tried to really simplify this, but there's even more to think about. We don't absorb 100% of the calories of every single thing we eat. Once again, not a study I've got up in front of me, but there's there's one example where they compared, they call it comparing processed foods to unprocessed foods. And the thing was like wholemeal bread versus white bread. And then there was like plastic cheese versus like an unrefined form of cheese. And there was a difference in how many calories was absorbed from that. It was like a 20% difference or something like that. Nothing crazy. Let's use another example, nuts. We seem to absorb about 60% of the calories from nuts. You have white sugar, you probably absorb 100% of the calories. Does this matter? Does this affect results? I don't think so. Like it's, if you are a consistent eater and you, whatever you do, you do consistently, doesn't matter. Another study I wanted to talk about was one by Kevin Hall in 2019. So he does a lot of like incredibly controlled research to answer some pretty tough questions. And this study involved 20 participants comparing unprocessed versus ultra processed foods that were matched for calories, macros, fiber, sodium, and sugar. That's actually really hard to do. It's actually really hard to design a study like that when you actually think about it um, because normally processed foods and stuff like that are probably going to have more sugar, less fiber, all those kind of things. But it was matched for all of these things. And these participants were able to eat ad libitum, as in they could just eat as much as they wanted. And this is the most, this is probably one of the most important things we wanted to talk about here in terms of, in this study, participants ate 500 calories more in the ultra processed food group. If you are eating less of these kind of nutrient-rich, 
whole foods, all of those kind of things, you're probably going to eat more calories. That's just a commonly accepted rule. And going through that study in particular, they didn't even have fiber, sodium, and sugar different. They had those matched. It was just processed versus unprocessed. If you eat lower fiber, you're not going to be as full. It's less satiating. If you eat higher sodium, you want to eat more food. That's a trick like any restaurant and fast food company knows. Like add salt to food, people will want it more. Same thing with sugar. Another example I wanted to use is Powerade. So I'm just going to round the numbers up. I think it's 36 grams of sugar, but I'm going to round up to 40 grams of sugar. So sugar has four calories per gram. So 40 times four, that's 160 calories. So sugar has the same amount of calories as carbs. Carbs also have four calories per gram and sugar is a carb. So 160 calories for a 600 ml bottle of Powerade. Compare that to a 600 ml bottle of water. Does one really fill you up much more than the other? Not really that much difference. One's also a little bit more appealing to drink. And that is part of how explaining how sugar adds in additional calories and stuff like that as well. And if you go too flexible with this entire approach, it makes it easier to eat more calories. So let's wrap things up for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Follow and subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts on. And I really hope you've enjoyed our podcast so far. Thank you. 